Hello and welcome to Z Prime on the Grid, a show about issues concerning the energy industry. I'm your host, Dylan Lockwood. Joining me, as always, are my two co-hosts, Christine. How are you doing today, Christine? I'm, I'm good. How are you, Dylan? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, and Aaron Hardick, live from Dallas. How are you, Aaron? I am freaking stoked, Dylan. Thanksgiving is two days away, and I have been prepping my stomach for this day for about a month now. So I'm in, I'm in very high spirits today. Are you making anything for Thanksgiving? <laughs> no, I'm just a, I'm just a consumer. I don't contribute to the the meal prep, um, but that primarily falls on my mom as well as my brother actually helps cook some but my mom is uh she runs the kitchen uh cooking is an art form of hers so we really leave all that up to her what do you do to prepare for all this eating Aaron Hardig <laughs> well thank you for asking Christine um I run, <laughs> I try to like run more in the days leading up so that um, I eat bigger meals so that my stomach, I don't know if this is like real logic, but in my mind, I've, I've convinced myself this is real so that I can eat bigger meals leading up to Thanksgiving so that my stomach can handle the amount of food that my eyes think it can. I always run into that problem. My eyes are bigger than my stomach. But this year, I'm feeling really confident in my abilities to hopefully eat two full plates. Do you, so you're trying to go for a record? I am. A, pers- uh, a PR, a personal okay. record. I think the, the Hardick household record is held by either my dad or my brother, um, who are essentially bottomless pits. I swear they have... Like as soon as they eat food, they metabolize it and just goes straight through their bodies and they can eat like six plates of Thanksgiving food. It's truly, it really is something impressive. So I've gone about it. I've gone about it with a different strategy. Uh, What I've been doing is for the past four years, I've just been eating bigger meals, uh, gaining weight (laughs) and becoming more lethargic. And then that way come Thanksgiving, I'm already living this lifestyle. Well, yeah, this is a this is a perfect segue into our guest, right? Because he <laughs> are you calling Canada. Phil fat? No, because they don't celebrate Thanksgiving in in Canada, right? That's fair. Uh, our guest today hails from Canada, our neighbor up north. We've got my good friend Phil Malone, who is a testing and instrumentation engineer for Energy Ottawa. How are you doing today, Phil? I'm doing very well, Dylan. How are you? Uh, I'm doing good. Like Aaron, I'm in good spirits uh, in preparation for Thanksgiving. Uh, however, it's also really rainy where I am right now, so I'm been kind of stuck inside, getting a little stir crazy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's definitely that way up here too. Uh, for us, it's more more on the snow side of things, so we're just kind of hunkering down for winter already. But uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's that time of year. My goodness. Yeah, so Phil, I met you at the Municipal Smart Grid Summit a few months back. Uh, since then, I had a I had a phone call with you a few months back. I wrote an article about our conversation on LinkedIn, which I'm sure six of the people listening to this will have read. It's okay. For the rest of the people and for those who haven't heard of Energy Ottawa, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. So, so Energy Ottawa is actually uh, an affiliate of uh, a municipal electrical utility in the city of Ottawa. 
So we are located in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, which is the, the capital of Canada. And Energy Ottawa is kind of a, a private sector branch of the municipal utility. So we do things like um, green power generation, you know, hydroelectric generation, landfill to gas, uh, and a little bit of solar. Um, we also do energy services for, for uh, commercial clients, HVAC systems, that kind of thing. Um, and most recently, as of two years ago, we've been doing work with other electrical utilities in, in a new branch we're calling infrastructure management. And so that's been really taking a lot of expertise from the electric utility developed here in Ottawa and bringing it out to other utilities elsewhere in Ontario, elsewhere in Canada. Um, and we're starting to actually take a look at going outward to the United States as well as Europe and abroad. Uh, Phil, did you grow up in Canada? Have you lived there your whole yeah, life? I am, yeah, I am from Ottawa, Ontario. Uh, I moved away for school a little bit, still in Ontario, though. Um, and uh, yeah, I lived, lived here my whole life. The, the only reason I ask is um, I grew up in Texas, and I tell people that, and a lot of the time they're like, oh, well, I don't detect a Texas accent and I'm like well I'm sorry to disappoint you with my lack of southern draw um but I don't really detect that much of a Canadian accent uh, on your side are there certain parts of Canada where the accent is more prominent absolutely I would I would say so um maybe Maybe not as varied as as you may have in the in the U.S. I know everybody kind of thinks of the typical, you know, uh, New York City Brooklyn accent versus uh, Southern drawl versus you know California surfer and uh, kind of those broad <laughs> strokes that, or the Midwest charm. Um, in Canada, I I would say there's definitely an East Coast vibe. Like you know, if you get out to to provinces like especially Newfoundland uh, and and even uh, New Brunswick and uh, and Nova Scotia as well. Like there's there's definitely a little bit more of a of a maritime feel to it. It's you know not quite Boston, not quite Irish accent, but somewhere in the middle. It's quite interesting and it's very charming. Um, and then there's also kind of the the more urban uh, urban Canadian, which I would say is kind of you know downtown Toronto or or any one of your larger cities. Um, and that's not not even to mention Quebec too. Um, I mean, I'm half uh, I'm half French. My mom grew up in Montreal, and so I I speak French at home with with my family and my parents. Um, but you know that that in itself is is a whole other ballgame in terms of uh, variety of accents and uh, and language there too, because you have suddenly French as your your primary language. Yeah, thank you for that. I, I've always been kind of curious. I've never made it up to Canada, and I, I it's cool to know that there are you know different accents based on different regions of the country, which is very um, similar to the United States. I mean, as far as far as Americans are concerned, uh, like the, the stereotype is that pretty much everyone from Canada sounds like they're from Fargo, North Dakota. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, North Dakota is pretty close to, to Manitoba, so I'm sure for some things it's, it's very quite similar uh, maybe accent wise or even temperament wise. I've never been to, to North Dakota myself, but uh, I've heard it's, I've heard it's fairly similar. Yeah, that's, that's just a stereotype as far as I know. I, I know where I'm sending Erin for her next business trip up to, <laughs> up to Canada in, in January. 
So I can practice my Canadian accent. So you yeah, can experience you real cold. <laughs> what? You mean 65 and sunny is not cold? Oh no, I've Uh-oh. been living a lie down here in Texas. I hate you. Uh, Van, yeah, well, yeah. The last time I was in, I've only been, I haven't been that far in Canada. The last time I was in Canada, I was in Vancouver. In fact, the last three times I was in Canada, I was in Vancouver. I went to Calgary once, and that's the extent of my trips to Canada. And all of the, and uh, all of those, like accent-wise, might might as well just be uh, West Coast American cities. Yeah, it it is very similar to um, one again. Once you get out more rural Canada, I would say um, there would be definitely more. Uh, I'll call it personality in the accents, uh, you know, and I've noticed the difference. We've done a fair amount of work in rural Ontario, northern Ontario, as well as rural Saskatchewan up in, in Manitoba and, and Alberta, too. And definitely you could you could you could hear quite the range of accents once you get outside of the cities, um, which, again, it just kind of it's all part of that country charm, I would say. Um, I mean, that's, honestly, that's kind of close to how it is, how it is here in the States, too. I mean, Boston notwithstanding, most uh, most cities have this typical Western accent that I'm speaking with now. Um, even even the even the famous New York accent are like is is mostly uh, it, it's a lot of it has a all right. I have to be careful not to start stepping on anyone's toes here or get my anthropology wrong. But to my understanding, the new, the quote unquote New York accent comes from uh, a lot, uh, kind of a mixture of immigrant ac- immigrant accents from the early uh, from the er- early twentieth century. So, uh, not a huge majority of people who live in New York City uh, speak with that accent. Well, one one little anecdote too is my dad grew up in a a, a city in southern Ontario called London, Ontario, um, and I mean I always kind of take this for for what it's worth, but he always said that uh, people in London, Ontario, were proven to have the most neutral English accent in the world. I don't know how trustworthy is that since he came from London, uh, <laughs> but I I must say when whenever I've traveled with him, you know whether it's out in the UK or in the States or, or wherever, you know, it, people always find a way to, to understand what, you know, what we're saying one way or another. Um, and if you compare it, like I, I had uh, some family go out uh, and, and do schooling in, in Scotland, for example, and for them, oh man, that was a real tough experience just trying to wrap your head around that really thick accent. And if you can only make out every second or third word, like it's, it's English, but it's really, really interesting uh, a really interesting accent, um, and yet vice versa. You know, they were they were quite easily able to understand them with their with their Canadian accent from Ontario or or even from Quebec. Um, I'm going to take a little side side trip there uh, because I, I I'm very opinionated on many things, and one thing that bugs me is you shouldn't you shouldn't name your your town after a famous city like yeah. London or well, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that in Ontario. My God, there's uh, uh London. There used to be Berlin. Um, and I think in either world war one or world war two, they changed it to, I think it's Kitchener now. Um, 
but and there's a Paris and yeah, uh, yeah I mean there's all sorts of small little towns that are named after larger cities. I mean in my off the top of my head, I'm thinking Vancouver, Washington, Moscow, Idaho, <laughs> Paris, Texas. Uh, yeah. um, those are the three that come to mind immediately. Yeah. But like that's well, well, when I was down at the Smart Grid Summit, um, there were some folks from Kansas, and I said, "Oh, I'm from Ottawa," and they said, "Oh, Ottawa, Kansas? No, no, Ottawa, Ontario." <laughs> I've never heard of Ottawa, Kansas before, but I'm sure it's a lovely town. My, yeah, my grandparents are from Ottawa, Kansas. Oh, you're kidding. No, I'm I'm from there Kansas and uh my my paternal grandmother grew up in Ottawa, Kansas. So it does exist. Wow. It's a real town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll have to go visit sometime. Yeah, so Washington State, we're we're pretty we're pretty close to Canada, I mean geographically. Yeah. Um and so in eastern Washington, every year there's this music festival. It's called Sasquatch, and a lot of people come down from uh from Canada. Uh, Van- from Vancouver specifically, you get people all in Canucks gear at this thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but then, so then, if you're talking to someone and they say they're from Vancouver, and they don't specify that they're from Vancouver, Washington, you assume it's the other Vancouver. And if they don't, if yeah. they're from Vancouver, Washington, and they don't specify that, they know exactly what they're doing. Yeah, and that's not on, especially when we're that close. It's, okay. Uh, yeah, it's funny that we're in two cities so close. Yeah, we've uh, we've gone completely off the rails. Well, what we almost started talking about right there is the is the concept of infrastructure. And we hear uh, these days, whenever you go to conferences or you start reading articles, you're going to hear a lot about updating infrastructure. That's a phrase that we we oftentimes throw around as well. Uh, and it can mean anything. It can mean updating software, enabling smart devices, replacing aging turbines. Uh, so from your perspective, like what, what, what does uh, infrastructure management mean for your team? Well, for us, it's, it's managing infrastructure assets. We focus more on uh, distribution utilities. So uh, more from electrical substations back out through the distribution network to actual customers, whether it's residential homes or uh, commercial services and that type of thing. Um, but at the distribution level, there was so much infrastructure put in post-war. So the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and even booming times in the 1980s, that all of that equipment is at or beyond end of life. Um, and basically, there, all those assets have to be managed somehow. And there's not enough money in, in current budgets for, for electrical utilities to replace those all that at the same rate that they were installed. So suddenly you have a bit of a mismatch into what people can afford to replace or renew and what is actually out in the system. And so you get a bit of a, a, bit of a jam in that, again, you're not having enough money to spend on all, everything in your system. And yeah, that's, I guess that's, that'd be the, the shortest way to put it. You know, it, it's, it's really... Uh, how to best optimize your your dollars spent on your your assets. So Phil, um you talked about, you know, a lot of assets in in the infrastructure are aging. It's not just, you know, 10%, 20%. It's the majority of them. So how do you guys start to go about, you know, figuring out which assets are a priority in terms of, you know, upgrading 
um, how do you figure out, you know, which ones are the most critical to start with and then and then moving out? What is that process kind of like? I would say traditionally things have been replaced on a age basis. So you would start with your oldest assets first. If it's, for example, a substation that was installed in the 1930s and it might have only had a few minor upgrades or maintenance work done since, well, you could be sure that that will be taken a look at first before stuff that was in installed in the 1950s or 1970s. Um, but since then, utilities have started to move towards a risk-based approach for asset management in that you're looking at not only the age of, the of uh, your assets, but also what is the likelihood of failure and what is the consequence of that failure. So if I have something like a single utility wood pole that's feeding a single little house and that's it. Well, even if that pole may have a relatively high likelihood of, of failing, you know, we would want to replace it before it actually falls over because at that point it becomes a, a public safety hazard. But the consequence of that failure would be quite little monetarily in that, you know, maybe it'll cost only ten or twenty thousand dollars to replace. And if I compare that to let's say again, a, a substation transformer, which will be upwards of, you know, in the millions of dollars range, and that would affect thousands and thousands of customers electrically. Um, suddenly the consequence of that failing asset is astronomical. So it's, it's, trying to, it's trying to compare things in an apples to apples sense, um, you know, trying to get everything on the same baseline. And, and so how utilities have been doing that is, is uh, trying to quantify risk by putting a dollar value to it. So having your, your risk of failure and multiplying that by your probability of failure to get a, an actual dollar value at the end of the day. And so what, what that can allow utilities to do is actually prioritize based on the risk cost. So something that has a higher risk cost associated with it will be looked at more aggressively or will be uh, looked at earlier in terms of replacement or or action required than something that has a lower risk cost. So the assets you're talking about, you mentioned that they were uh, put in place in this big post-war in this big post-war boom, especially as people moved out to the suburbs. Uh, so now that we're about to start uh, updating and updating old infrastructure and installing new infrastructure as well, uh, what lessons can we learn? from uh from that from those pre what lessons can we learn from the from the past what circumstances are kind of similar and what can we do better this time around well i would say similar circumstances are that um you have that existing infrastructure already so you have to typically the utilities are looking to replace like for like uh, so for example if you're using 100 poles to distribute power to a certain neighborhood well, we still have to distribute power to you know those specific houses in that neighborhood. Maybe we can try to do it with a few less poles because the poles we buy today are stronger, more resilient, better treated if it's a wood pole, for example. So, so there's improvement of materials and uh, procurement practices and um, infrastructure technology too, whether it's you know your, your average wood pole uh, being treated better or something like underground cables having uh, gone through a couple of iterations of, of technologies in terms of insulation, uh, different layers being applied, external jackets, protective jackets, that kind of thing. 
so that's that's one thing that I would say has improved over time is is the technology and and the equipment itself that's going in the ground. I get yeah. In terms of mistakes that were made, I would say that because things were growing so rapidly, and um, I mean we we know experience of this just in the city of Ottawa. There were a few suburbs that were growing so rapidly in the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, the municipal utilities at the time, because every suburb has it, it had its own utility, um, and they merged all together about 20 years ago. Um, but but every local utility had such rapid growth that they were just uh, putting in as much infrastructure as they could just to keep up with the growth. And in this case, it was underground cables, and they were buying the cheapest cables they could, putting them in the ground. You know, splice is not being done quite to spec as per the manufacturer. And uh, so they, they met all that growth, but sure enough, you know, 15, 20, 30 years later, a lot of that stuff started failing earlier than, than had in, been anticipated because of a, some shortcuts taken in, in the quality of the product or the actual installation of the product at the end of the day. Um, so I think a lot of utilities have, have taken into account uh, some of the mistakes that have been made in the past. As well as again on the underground cable example, you know, putting in appropriate civil structures. So if you can put things in in duct structures so that you can pull out a new cable and pull a new one in in its place, rather than having it directly buried in the ground, where you would have to dig a trench to put in a new cable, or if you have to repair it, digging a, a splice pit just to put in a, a a new section of cable within the existing one. Which which can be fairly time consuming, and, and especially in Canada, uh, where you have some deeper frost going in in the winter. You know, to to do any civil work in the middle of winter, if you're having cable failures, well, that can result in in some escalating costs on operating and maintenance budgets for for utilities. So, so a lot of it is it has been learning from from some of those mistakes in the past, and trying not to compromise on quality that's going in the ground today, and by going in the ground. I'm, you know, using the example of, of cables, but it could be anything from, you know, switch gears, poles, substation equipment, um, or even, you know, if you expand it out to, to transmission as well, you know, transmission towers and uh, switching stations, capacitor banks, whatever it may be. Phil, you mentioned, you know, utilities starting to move towards this model where they're you know, quantifying risk in, in terms of dollars and cents, um, which Christine... That makes me think about before I came to Z Prime, I believe you had just finished a report or were wrapping up a report um, around ITOT convergence. Isn't that right? Yes, that's correct. Um, and it reminds me of the report that we're working on now uh, for OSIsoft over the industrial Internet of Things. So starting to see that shift and focus on asset health and maintenance, this aging infrastructure, how can we make it smart? How can we, how can we learn more about the assets that we have and, and really maximize that value? Do you, Christine, do you see a, a tie there? Am I, am I making the right connection or is that, am I just being crazy? Is there not really a connection between II, industrial internet of things, and then the convergence of, of ITOT? Yeah, I mean, I think um, with the, Industrial Internet of Things, it's it's talking about a lot of, of new sensors um, that are going out on, on networks and within plants uh, that that may not be a part of traditional control and, and automation systems. Um, so, you know, some of that gets into that that IT side. 
Um, I mean, the IT aspects a lot of times are a lot of back office systems that that people are dealing with, and the the OT piece, the operations technology, is really uh, around you know these these control systems, you know all these all these different um, elements that that you know a lot of times engineering engineers are are dealing with. Uh, and that was a question I had for Phil is really understanding a little bit more uh, about the role that digitalization, you know, plays in, in all the work that you're doing around asset management. Uh, you certainly talked about a lot of the strategies that, that people are looking at. I mean, what role do you see digital technologies playing in asset management? Well, Christine, I would say that it definitely has an important role to play. Um, I was just discussing with one of my other colleagues uh, before this call just on on one or two things on, on asset management and how it's potentially going to change going forward. And, and he brought up a, a good point uh, mentioning that, you know, yes, you know, you get more of these new sensors every year that'll detect X or detect Y. And, and yeah, that'll feed into your asset management program. But the thing is, is if you have a lot of aging assets and you deploy all these brand new sensors, let's say, um, are you going to get your full value out of it if you're going to have to replace those assets in the next five years anyways? You know, some, some utilities are just trying to get a hold of, well, what do they have on their system at this very moment, let alone, you know, how can we start detecting it in real time if we know it's going to fail within the next couple of years and, and it's going to have to be renewed anyways. So, so I think from, from that perspective, it was more a tale of, of a tale of caution saying, you know, absolutely, technology is important and we need to integrate it. Um, but there's also a time and a place to do it in that, you know, if we know something is going to be totally replaced, well, maybe we should hold off and wait until there's a new uh, system put in. And then we can, you know, basically start from scratch saying, yes, this is best practice to date in terms of asset installation, asset quality of product, and sensors and monitors so that when this asset becomes at end of life or whenever its life progresses, we can keep track of it in the best way that we've ever been able to before. Um, but that being said, we don't want to keep delaying the progress of technology. So there has to be some compromise in, in, in joining in uh, that myriad of, you know, new technology being done today or being, you know, coming out today rather. And how can we incorporate that in right off the bat or, or where does it make sense to incorporate that? We've seen, and I'm just thinking of, of remote sensing, for example, we've seen uh, some things like, for example, substation transformers. Again, because it's a very high dollar value asset and very high risk if, if it were to fail. Um, we've seen remote sensors been deployed on that for, for quite some time, whether it's, it's been uh, remote DGA sensors for, for dissolved gas and, and looking at the actual quality of, of the oil insulating the, um, the transformer core itself and how that breaks down over time can actually tell us what the condition is or give us an insight as, you know, as to what the condition is of the transformer itself. And to be able to remote to remotely detect that, well, suddenly, you know, it, it saves us from having to deploy human resources to actually go out and take oil measurements. You know, you could get that almost not instantaneously, but but instantaneously in comparison to actually, you know, putting feet on the ground and, and doing that manual process and sending it out to a lab. Um, so I'm not sure if, if that answers your question, Christine, but. Uh... No, I, th I think it's a great response. I, I mean, we've definitely seen it in the industry. Uh, people really wrestling with, you know, how does digitalization 
uh, impact the assets that are that are being installed on the grid and and how things are monitored because I think like you said Phil you know people are installing these assets that they expect to last for a pretty long time and you know a lot of the digital assets uh, sensors things like that uh, have to be upgraded more more frequently I think we're really starting to see people who had installed that first wave of of AMI meters saying, hey, you know, they're they're out of date now. Um, and and they're really looking at at making these these upgrades. But at the same time, I mean it seems like, you know, with some of these sensors and, and things that we're able to monitor, um, you know, you really do get a lot of 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 good information back uh, about the state of these assets. So um it definitely seems like maybe there's a little bit of a trade-off there in terms of um, you know, the investments that are being made in in the sensors and, you know, the capabilities that that they're able to provide utilities. Christine, that um, makes me think about this question that we like to ask in our surveys uh, around, you know, responsibility for dealing with these challenges. So, Phil, and I, I don't, I'm not trying to put you on the spot or anything, but I'm going to ask you what it may be a loaded question. Um, whose responsibility do you think it is in terms of like getting through this phase where you don't want to put a new sensor on an, an old asset? You still have about, you know, five years before you want to stick a new sensor on, on that asset. Whose responsibility is it to figure out what to do with that asset during that waiting time? Do you look to the technology vendor and say, hey, give me something to deal with this asset over the next five years before I can really, you know, put a new sensor on it? Or do you feel like it's kind of your utilities um, responsibility to, f- to figure out what to do? Wh- whose responsibility or where does that responsibility fall in, in your eyes? I would say it's a bit of both, but it's not limited to them necessarily. Obviously, at the end of the day, it would have to reside with the utility since it's their infrastructure. They're the ones who are operating it, maintaining it at the end of the day, and they're the ones accountable to the public at the end of the day for the operation and the reliability of their electrical grid. That being said, of course, they're going to get input from industry experts. I mean, that's that's where the research and development is being put in. That's where that in-depth product knowledge and technology knowledge comes from. And I'm sure they're they're relying on them to to try to get the best technology they can in what places it makes sense. Now in other sense now in other cases too, you might have other players like regulators or government. Like here in Ontario, for example, a number of years ago the provincial government made it a mandate that all electrical utilities were to put in smart meters. They were going to go with time of use cost for electricity province wide. And so suddenly you had to have 100% compliance with electrical metering using new smart meter technology. They didn't say which smart meters to use. They only gave kind of a baseline requirement, a minimum requirement of functionality. Um, and this was before my time, you know, like, like you, Aaron, I've only been in the industry full time for about two years now. So I'm still, still pretty green compared to a lot of the other folks that have been here 30, 35 years or so. But just kind of absorbing their knowledge and their background, you know, we hear some really interesting uh, stories, but also some really interesting um, anecdotes as to, you know, how large systems were implemented and how new technology was, you know, some of it was was put in and taken in kind of by an osmosis process saying, oh, yeah, you know, this makes sense. And 
engineers and technical staff and even some operations staff slowly bringing in new technology into the mix as to what made more and more sense for the day. And also taking a look at other utilities around neighboring, whether it was other local utilities in Ontario or Canada-wide or, again, kind of North America-wide, what, what technologies were being adopted. Um, but also sometimes just kind of being handed a certain, a certain uh, how would you put it, um, I guess, you know, just being dealt a certain hand in, in some sense saying, well, you know, you just have to go do this. The province is clamping down and they want smart meter data for all their customers so that they can do time of use billing. And sometimes you, you don't really have a choice and, and you have to adapt to it too. So a bit of a roundabout way to the answer, but I would say it's a little bit of everybody, but at the end of the day, the utilities are going to be accountable for it. Um, so maybe that's why we've seen a little bit more caution being taken uh, for new technology being on the market um, and being implemented in utilities. Now, kind of as an aside, I, I did, uh, I did a, a master's degree a few years ago uh, down in, in Toronto in, in electrical engineering, but it was interesting at the time because you would see new technologies that were kind of on the cutting edge at the time, so you know, white papers being published in scientific uh, journals and, and conference proceedings and that, and that was kind of 2014 or so. And it's interesting to see that a lot of the new technology that was just being developed at the time, you're starting to hear about it today, but you know, it's still maybe another five years away from actually being implemented. And that may be just in a pilot project perspective. So in terms of new technology coming to market from the initial R&D conception and kind of going through that scientific process saying, yes, this is a novel idea, or yes, this is, you know, we're, we're, this is a conclusive result and we can make viable products or viable solutions from this. It may take quite some time for, for the utility industry and utility sector to actually buy into that idea or for it to, to become quite economical for it that it really takes off in the sector. Bill, I'm glad that you mentioned that you've only been in the industry for a few years. <laughs> Christine's preemptively laughing because she knows what's about to come next, and that's me making fun of her for how old she is. Um, I think Christine's been in the industry for about 40, I mean, 10 years. Sorry, Christine. Uh, but one question uh, that Christine and I have asked, you know, audiences when we've done research presentations in the past is, you know, what is the most transformative technology you've seen throughout your tenure in the industry? And you just kind of mentioned that, you know, seeing some of these technologies that were really in R&D and now they're starting uh, to creep up. Do you have, a, you know, a specific example of a technology that's sticking out to you that you saw, you know, back in the beginning phases that's now coming to light um, in the industry overall? I mean, again, I've only had a handful of years in the industry. So for in terms of turnaround time, uh, a couple of years is actually pretty short in the utility uh, in the utility timeline. In terms of a few technologies, again, like some things when I'm thinking back to when I was uh, back when I was in, in university, you know, smart meters were a big thing. Um, and, you know, the first generation of smart meters coming out that that seemed to some people were kind of were portraying it as a solution to all problems when it came to predicting customer consumption tendencies 
and how you could potentially incorporate demand response into that. But and we've seen that come come full circle in a sense. I mean, some of the original smart meters installed in Ontario, uh, those first few years we've seen now, well, had they waited maybe two or three years later, the smart meters at that point, you know, whether it was a Mark II or a Mark III of a specific uh, meter model, uh, would have had a lot more functionality, like remote disconnects, for example, or being able to collect power, some power quality data right at the meter, or being able to aggregate data over transformers automatically rather than having it as a, a post-software process. Again, that was, that was kind of some, some cautionary tales told to me by, by some more experienced folks at, at the, in electrical utilities saying, well, you know, had they waited a few more years, they could have really gotten their bang for their buck. And now suddenly it's almost expected that you have that technology in place when in reality, well, we would have to change out all of our electrical meters again. And it's not like your, your Joe Average electrical utility customer is going to want to foot that bill. I, I think that's where things like industrial IoT uh, start to become more more interesting. I mean, Phil, you talked about the investments in, in AMI meters and, oh, you know, if they would have waited uh a couple of years, they would have gotten a lot more functionality. And there's there's been a lot more interest in IoT devices and sensors because there are things that, that in theory should be a lot cheaper um, than typical uh, industrial control systems, PLCs, all those sorts of things. And um, then there are things that, you know, can be upgraded a, a little bit faster and, you know, be something that um, people can can essentially upgrade or, or make new new investments on um, relatively easily. But I mean, that's what you were talking about earlier, Aaron, with the I, IT versus OT, where, you know, a lot of these devices, um, you know, they may not be as, as rugged as some of the things that are out there. They may not last quite as long. Um, so there are certainly, certainly those, those trade-offs. But I think where we've really seen kind of this digitalization really start to take off is, I think, like you said, Aaron, around, you know, DERs, how do we best integrate those, but also just, you know, some of the changes in the technologies that are, that are available and and the price points that they come in at where these upgrades can happen uh, a little bit more easily than some of the traditional um, investments that the utilities have been making in digital infrastructure. Um, another kind of anecdote to just to add to, to Christine's thoughts there. Um, one thing you brought up was is kind of the the ruggedness of um, or the maintainability of any future equipment going in on top of the existing grid already, and that's a very good point. I mean, a lot of these assets that are being installed now are expected to last upwards of 30, 40, or 50 years or even longer. Um, and so, how is this new technology going to cope with that? Will it be able to last as long? You know, how will it be maintained? Um, some things like remote sensors that operate off of battery packs, for example, or maybe a little solar panel that'll charge, you know, give it a trickle charge, for example. How will that be maintained? You know, up here in Canada, there's a lot of devices that are remotely operated and, and are powered by battery banks. But sure enough, if you have a battery bank in the middle of winter at minus 40 Celsius, well, I can tell you that battery bank's not going to be holding a whole lot of charge and may not be able to operate whatever device you're looking to operate. or you know, take that measurement of data or whatever it is it's, it's doing. And so suddenly you're realizing, well, turns out, oh, this remote switch, I actually have to operate manually between the months of December and April because it doesn't work in the cold. So the technology is great 
for eight months of the year, but you know, how do you ruggedize it in some harsh environments? You know, if it's extreme cold, extreme heat, extreme humidity, you know, we're, we're seeing distribution systems all over the world or, or extreme, extreme dryness, um, you know, literally from, from deserts to Arctic conditions. And how can you accommodate it in all those geographical areas? So, so that's another, another big challenge, too, in, in getting new technologies to market, anything that will be deployed in the field itself. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting, um, Phil, that you bring that up. I mean, we we end up doing a lot of research into, um, you know, ruggedized mobile devices for field crews, uh, and and definitely that's something to consider with the with the assets, you know, that are out on the the grid itself. Um, I, I think it's also interesting you talk about the lifespan of you know the infrastructure that utilities are making investments in, and it makes me think back to. Uh, our start at ETS event, which was a pilot competition that we did uh, back in in late October, and there we had five um, f- five startups, you know, pitch their ideas of of new technologies that will transform the industry. We had a lot of um, pilot recommendations that focused around things involving, you know, social media, uh, you know, Bitcoin, those sorts of things. But the technology that actually won. Um, was from a company called Grid 2020, and they'd essentially come up with a, a device that clipped onto transformers, um, you know, to monitor transformers remotely. Um, and you know, it wasn't anything whiz bang, really, in my mind, you know, crazy. But it was the one that ended up winning because you know it was such an issue of, of being able to monitor transformers remotely. And this is something that just clipped on very easily. You know, if you needed to update it or replace it, it was very easy to do, um, you know, and that's the thing that ultimately ended up winning. So, I mean, it seems like having those sorts of technologies that can be, you know, added pretty easily to the system um, would be a lot of value for, for utilities. I mean, well, the thing to kind of marry the two ideas, the thing about rigidity isn't that it, it's not just about protecting your cables and poles from the elements, although that's certainly a huge part of it. But in the modern age of digitalization, you have to be able to have long-lasting digital assets as well. And that's increasingly harder with the way that software and hardware and hardware are produced. You know, there was a time when you had a dam, right? And you had a rotor and blades for your turbine that you needed to replace every every 15 years or whatever. That's just a number I made up. I don't know what the actual number is. Uh, just as it rusted and had wear and tear. But now, you know. The way that your the way that your software systems work, they're fluid enough that they can be updated regularly. But if there's a problem, there are a litany of other problems that can come in that can kind of hurt it. Not to mention cybersecurity issues. And in, in that, uh, once someone figures out how to break a piece of software, it's essentially useless, and you need to you need to completely overhaul it. So I think that kind of plays into what Phil is talking about. In in that, can your digital assets keep pace or last as long as the physical assets that they're meant to assist. Although I think also you were touching on there, Christine, was that they can kind of work in tandem. You can use the digital assets to help improve the life of your physical assets. That's kind of what uh, Grid 2020's thing was, was that you could use the, you could use the, the smart transformer addition to more accurately predict when the transformer was going to fail 
which again, Phil is what your was one of your what you said was one of your biggest priorities in asset management was assessing risk. So uh, I think that's I think that's the missing link there between digitalization of assets and prolonging the life of your assets. Dylan, I think you know that's interesting because we are doing research around this, and what we found, um, at least so far, is that the digitalization of these assets, especially you know, these industries, aside from utilities, just asset and asset intensive industries in general, um, is the idea of digitalizing these assets is really to increase visibility into these systems. So not, you know, the top priority isn't, you know, increasing the life of the asset, but just trying to get a way to see into what these assets are doing. So you have that tie, kind of that tie that you were talking about there, but just really looking at, you know, how can we increase our visibility and control into um, our systems that have these really old assets on them? So we're running a little low on time, but uh, Phil, I had one more question for you. Do you have any overall recommendations for utilities? Uh, let's, let's say I, Let's say I work for a utility and a lot of our assets were put in in the in the 40s and 50s. What advice would you have for them for their long-term planning? Well, long-term planning, I would say moving to a, a best practice model, which would be a risk-based asset management approach. Um, as I mentioned before, that's really where utilities are moving towards in terms of putting a dollar amount to the risk and the consequences of failures of those assets um, and being able to prioritize uh, replacement uh, of those assets or upgrading of those assets, being able to prioritize that appropriately or as best as they can with, with the, the certain budgets given. Let me follow up with that then. Um, what areas of infrastructure do you think need to be looked at and what might utilities be overlooking in their infrastructure network? There's a lot of, other, I mean, the asset classes that you can list of, of distribution systems is, is fairly extensive. There's so many different types of pieces of equipment. Uh, even if you want to bring it down to the nuts and bolts and switches and fuses and cutouts, elbows, station transformers, relays, circuit breakers, like it, the list goes on and on. So it's just, and each of those has its own expected lifespan, its own, there's an expected lifespan, but there's also an actual degradation curve in terms of how it actually decays over time or how it actually ages. Um, and keeping track of all of that, you know, that's something that. As a, as a quote-unquote newbie, I'm, I'm still trying to wrestle with myself. You know, I, I have, I'm kind of lucky in that I get to dive into electrical cables specifically and, and really get to know those very well. Um, but I'm also kind of putting my head up and, and trying to get a sense of, well, well, what else is there? If there's all these issues with cables alone, there must be this many issues with, with every other type of asset out there as well. Actually, it's interesting you said there, you said, well, if there's this many issues with, with cables, then I can only imagine how many issues there are with, with other areas. What do you mean by that? What are, what are these issues? I mean, I know what you mean because I talked with you about this, but for the sake of the, for the, sake of the audience, uh, what do you mean by that? Um, well, issues with, with distribution cable, it's, it's like I had mentioned before, you know, a lot of it was installed in the late 60s, 1970s, and 1980s, and all of it's at end of life. But Sure enough, um, the expense and the capital cost to replace cable is extremely, extremely expensive. Um, up in Canada, I'm, I'm not too sure about in the States, but the cost to, to install something underground is almost you know, five to ten times the cost than if you were to put it overhead, if you were to, to build an overhead pole line. 
Um, and the reason for that is not only the initial cost, but the life cycle cost too. You know, how do you take out of service something that's underground? How do you replace something as well if it's directly buried in the ground, as I mentioned before? Well, you you may have to dig another trench to put some more equipment in beside it. Um, so it becomes very expensive to replace assets like that, like cables. Um, and so really trying to do so in in the best fashion that you can. Um, I guess what, what I'm trying to get at is that cables are just a very, very expensive asset to take a look at. And it's a key part of the distribution system. Without cables, you, you couldn't transfer power necessarily to to the vast majority of, of urban cities in North America, let alone in the world. So suddenly, if that's a linchpin of your distribution system, well, you can be sure that if that starts failing, you're going to have some serious repercussions in terms of loss of reliability, loss of uh, customer, I would say, uh, customer trust at some point too, if, if you can't deliver electricity reliably, plus if you have increasing operating and maintenance costs for constantly repairing your system. Um, so, so that's kind of the, um, I would say that's kind of the pessimistic view of looking at it. Uh, but in another light, it's also a great opportunity to really prioritize where you want to spend your money first and how to rebuild your system as per best standards for today so that you won't, hopefully won't have to run into these issues in 20, 30, 40 years from now. Yeah, I think that, that, uh, goes along with what you talked about earlier with this kind of ecosystem of of the checks and balances between the utility, the solutions providers, and the regulators where, you know, if if something's not being addressed, then someone else kind of steps in with it with an idea. And also like you said, the buck does ultimately stop at the utility. But there's a there definitely appears to be systems in place and people doing hard work such as the folks at Energy Ottawa to make sure that we don't end up in this kind of management crisis. So I think, uh, I think we'll leave it there. I'm going to be recording the next podcast and Aaron's going to be still hung over from trip to fan. Soak so. it up, you guys. I'm never in this good of a mood throughout the rest of the year. So you are welcome. So, uh, Phil, how can people find out more about Energy Ottawa? Well, they could find us uh, online at energyottawa.com slash infrastructure. Uh, one thing is we will actually be at the Distributech, the Distributech conference in San Antonio, Texas in January 2018. Uh, we will have a booth there, um, as well as a presentation on our cable testing technology uh, with one of the scientists who developed it and uh, one of the uh, engineering utility folks that, that has been using it for the past few years as a, as a case study. So. Uh, yeah, that's where you can uh, find us at at our next event. We're also going to be at Distributech, so we'll we'll have a we'll have a whole reunion there. People will also be able to accost us and ask for our signatures because that's what people do, I assume. Yes, uh, the rock and roll podcast lifestyle. Exactly. And I think uh, we're also having a, a a massive party there, Dylan. So you'll have you'll have to stop by the party, Phil. Uh oh. <laughs> sure. Looking forward to it. Z Prime Party. If you're interested in any of our other insights, research, etc., cetera, uh, you can go to etsinsights.com. It's been wholly redesigned. It looks really cool now. And you can find the whole podcast library there too, which is nice. But we're also on iTunes. So you can find it there or SoundCloud. The three of us are all on social media at DY Lockwood. 
at Aaron underscore Hardick and at HC Richards. Uh, so I would like to thank Phil for being on with us today. Thanks for having me on, Dylan. Anytime. I would also like to thank my co-hosts, Aaron. Thanks, Dylan. And you mentioned, Phil mentioned, uh, we will be at Distributech. So if you want to um, meet with us in person, myself, Dylan, Christine, um, while at Distributech, because like Phil said, we are quite rock stars living this podcast lifestyle. Um, just please feel free to engage on social media um, to hopefully set up a meeting. You know, we, we like to learn as much as possible. We can um, we like to learn as much as we possibly can at events, especially ones as big as distribute tech. So definitely looking to meet some of y'all. So please, please reach out. Please. We're so lonely. And of course, I have to thank my other co-host, Christine. Thanks, Dylan. Um, I mean, Aaron gave a pretty good summary there about distribute tech and how cool we are. Um, I just I hope you have some some good pumpkin pie and and your green bean casserole turns out well. <laughs> Thanks. I, w- I was waiting for the other shoe to drop, where you throw more shade at my crust. I, I wasn't going to bring up crust on this podcast. Um, okay. Maybe on a future one. Apparently, Dylan thinks he's a pie expert, but he does not make his own crust. I can. So... I just choose not to. <laughs> Dylan, do you know who you're dealing with? Christine is the master of pies. Yeah, I, 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 I realized that in a call today, that I might have been out of my depth. Um, I don't make my crust on every pie. I make my graham cracker crusts when I, when I need them. Um, but as far as making an actual dough, like an actual dough, I find that I get pretty comparable results from store-bought crust as long as it's not been frozen. And with that, we are out of here. My name is Dylan Lockwood. Thank you and enjoy your, enjoy your holidays or in Phil's case, you're the rest of your November. I'll, uh, I'll enjoy my snow shovels. <laughs> <laughs>